Our Old Testament lesson comes from Psalms 14 and 15. Hear now the word of our God from Psalms 14 and 15. To the choir master of David, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. And Psalm 15, a Psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is the word of the Lord. When you look at Psalms 14 and 15 side by side, you see the the path of fools and the path of the righteous clearly contrasted. Uh, I thought about just doing Psalm 14, but then we'd have to wait a whole week for the Lord to restore the fortunes of his people, because in Psalm 15 we see what it is to dwell on God's holy hill. Psalm 14 shows us the fool, the one who does not seek after God, who devours people with his words, who is corrupt and does abominable things, who uses power and influence to shame the poor. But then Psalm 15 shows us the righteous, the one who worships at God's holy hill and stays there because he does what is right. He speaks truth in his heart and therefore uses words to bless those who fear the Lord. The righteous is incorruptible and uses his power and wealth to help the innocent. Our New Testament lesson comes from Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17. Hear now the word of our God from Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17. Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. 
Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I, I thought about reading Romans 3, because that's where Paul quotes Psalm 14. Uh, but part of the reason why I chose Ephesians 4 is because, actually, in, in Romans 3, Paul's point is that Jews are no better than Gentiles. If, if, as we go through Psalm 14, it's clear that when, when the psalmist talks about there is none who seeks God, he's talking about the sons of Adam, he's talking about the nations, because he contrasts them with the righteous. He contrasts them with God's people. And so obviously in Psalm 14, it's those, it really is those Gentiles over there don't seek God. And what Paul is doing in Romans 3 is saying, oh, by the way, Jews are no different. <laughs> Jew and Gentile alike have, are, have, are in sin. So, yes, it's true that in, uh, apart from Christ... There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. Apart from Christ, we are all dead in our sins. But why I read Ephesians 4 is because Ephesians 4 is taking both Psalm 14, the themes of Psalm 14 and the themes of Psalm 15 and weaving them together around who were you apart from Christ? Well, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, just like Psalm 14 said. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And that's exactly what Psalm 14 is saying. Because the fool of Psalm 14, he's, David's not here talking about God's people. He's talking about those who are alienated from the life of God. When the fool says in his heart, there is no God, uh, this is not saying that he's a sort of a theoretical atheist. Rather, he's a practical atheist. The, the practical atheist is the one whose actions demonstrate ignorance of God. Because the point of saying there is no God is that they believe that they can get away with abominable deeds. I can hurt people and God won't do anything about it. After all, he hasn't done anything yet. <laughs> if, if you know anything about the history of God's people and his dealings, God's dealings with his people, God is very patient and he does not deal, deal with our sins on the spot as they deserve. If he did, we'd all be toast. He is patient. And so the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. Are there any among the children of Adam who seek after God? Are there any who act wisely? And David says, no, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Humanity has turned aside from God's path. The children of Adam all partake of Adam's corruption. Sin has contaminated the human race. And this contamination has spread to every part of us. Our heart, our, our inner thought and reasoning is corrupt. Our deeds are vile. 
our understanding turns away from God. It's, it's what we mean by total depravity. Total depravity doesn't mean that everyone is as bad as they could possibly be. It's rather that sin has reached to every part of us. Every part of us is corrupted. Every one of us and every part of us. And this is also connected to when we talk about original sin, the, the corruption of Adam's nature that has spread to the whole human race. Because this isn't just an individual problem. David says, together they have become corrupt. Certainly, every individual has sinned. But when he says, together they have become corrupt, he's pointing out that societies are sinful as well. The nations are not characterized by justice and righteousness. So, yes, individually, we are all sinners. And together, our corruption finds new ways to spread. And it's, we, it's, it's appropriate to talk about systemic problems as well as individual problems, because both sorts of things exist. Together, they have become corrupt. And you see this in verses 4 to 6, as David speaks of how the, the evildoers cannot win in the end because the Lord is the refuge of the poor. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my bread as they eat, pe- uh, eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? Now, you might think from the beginning of the first line in verse 4 that our problem is a lack of knowledge. Have they no knowledge? We oftentimes fall into this in our society where we think that education is the solution to everything. If we just gave, you know, taught people correctly, if they just were educated well, that would solve problems. It hasn't worked yet. And why not? Well, because verse 4 actually points to a different source for the problem. They do not call upon the Lord. At the root of our knowledge problem is a worship problem. Now, I think, I think we all know how this works. Have you ever been in a situation where you knew what the right thing to do was, but you just couldn't quite bring yourself to do it? You knew the thing that you were about to do was wrong, but you just didn't seem to be able to stop. You're like, why am I doing this when I know it's wrong? It's not a knowledge problem. It's not somehow that, oh, if we could just educate you better about what's going on here, then you would now do the right thing. Not a knowledge problem. It's a worship problem. It's a, what is the thing that we love most? That's the thing that's going to drive where every, every time we go astray, it's going to be that love problem. It's going to be that worship problem that's at the root and at the heart. That's, again, why we read Ephesians 4. They are darkened in their understanding. Oh, it's a knowledge problem. Alienated from the life of God. Because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. These things are connected. The knowledge problem, the ignorance that is due to our hardness of heart, our worship problem. What is it that matters most to you? What is the thing that drives you, that motivates you to do what you do? You know, that's your God. That's what you worship. And so if it's, if it's the Lord your God that gets you up in the morning, and then not, you, will, you will love him and serve him in all that you do. But whatever it is that motivates you, whatever it is that, where your heart defaults to, that is what you worship. 
Now, David tells us that, that, that God looks down from heaven and he sees people doing all sorts of things to each other. And he describes it this way. They eat up my people as they eat bread. I mean, this, I mean, this is not cannibalism. They're, they're, they're not literally eating people. But uh, we talk about this in the English language too, whether you know, backbiting or words devouring. Uh, if you say that somebody's backbiting, they're saying nasty things behind your back. When you speak evil of one another, you are using your mouth to bite and devour each other. Paul uses the term reviler to describe one who uses words to tear down and destroy. And David's word for this is that you are eating them. Your words are consuming them. If you've ever been on the receiving end of such language, then you know how it feels. You know how it feels for other people's words to be consuming you, eating you up, and you feel as though their words are just, are, there's nothing left of you because they are destroying you with words. Words devour. But David assures us that the evildoers cannot win. They're there in great terror. Who's the they? The people who are devouring others with their words. They are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Notice that he connects the righteous with the poor. We we oftentimes think of the poor simply as those who lack stuff. Uh, And so if if you think that that poverty is about material possessions, then, then the way to solve poverty would be to help people get stuff. Why doesn't that work? Well, because, again, it's just like our problem isn't fundamentally a knowledge problem, so also with poverty, the solution isn't, it's not a stuff problem. Because notice how David describes the situation. He speaks to the evildoers and says, you would shame the plans of the poor. The problem here is not that they're taking their stuff. Poverty is fundamentally a problem of honor, shame, power. The poor are helpless and ashamed. Those of you who are students are are generally living well below the poverty line. But you're not poor. You may not be able to afford much stuff, but you have access to power and influence. Even if your professor tried to derail your future, you have recourse to others who could make it right. You see, oftentimes people who are younger and beginning their lives don't have much stuff, but they have access, if, they are, if they are connected, if they have access to people who do have power and influence, they're not really poor. And there is, a, there is a correlation between poverty and material lack because if a, you know, in theory, a poor man could have a lot of stuff, but then somebody who's powerful will come along and take his stuff and there's nothing the poor man can do about it. So that when David says, you would shame the plans of the poor, actually, uh, the, the word that follows is actually not the word but, it's because the Lord is his refuge. This is where I think the translators were thinking, because doesn't make sense here, so they put a but. I don't, but actually the because makes sense here. They shame the plans of the poor because the poor takes refuge in the Lord. 
The whole point of the psalm is that the evildoers are fools who don't believe that God is going to do anything about their evil deeds. But the, because the, the poor takes refuge in the Lord, the evil fool says, Aha, I can take advantage of him. Oh, you think so, do you? You will not succeed. Because the poor takes refuge in the Lord. The, the fool says in his heart, he trusts in the Lord to protect him. Ha! Now let's see whether God will save him. They said that about Jesus, didn't they? Because after all, while the, the fool of Psalm 14 is a Gentile, what the coming of our Lord Jesus shows is that it's entirely possible for Israel to become Gentiles, for Israel to become like the nations. All you have to do is act like a Gentile. All you have to do is act like one who doesn't believe in the Lord. Indeed, Paul writes to the largely Gentile church in Ephesus and tells them, do not walk as the Gentiles do. You are not Gentiles anymore. You're not Jews. You're not Gentiles. If you're in Christ, you are a new humanity. And that's why verse 7 calls upon the Lord that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. That, that phrase, restore the fortunes, it's actually re- restore the captivity. Uh, this is why many of the early fathers thought that this song was, was from the period of the exile because they, they said, this sounds like a return from exile uh, song, which it might be, um, but also it's also worth noting that all through Israel's history, there were lots of captivities. There were lots of times during the time of the judges when they were in captivity to other nations. During the, the episode at Shiloh when the ark itself was taken into captivity. Restoring the captivity is a problem that Israel had all through their, their generations. And even in the reigns of David and Solomon, not all was glorious and righteous. Throughout the centuries, Israel certainly experienced plenty of captivity long before the great captivity in the days of of Jeremiah. And so we long for salvation to come out of Zion. We long for the day when God will restore the fortunes of his people because we live there too. We live in in a day when things are not the way they should be, when we feel very much in, in many areas of life as though we were exiles. Peter even writes to the, in First Peter, he speaks to the church as, as the elect exiles of the dispersion. That's who we are. We are living in exile in the midst of a, you know, yes, Jesus is king. He's sitting on the throne. But we don't yet see everything under his feet. Things are not yet the way they should be. And we don't want to live in exile. We want to dwell on God's holy hill. And that's why we needed Psalm 15 today as well. Because who shall dwell on your holy hill. Who shall, shall sojourn in the tent of the Lord? I don't want to be a fool. I don't want to turn aside and become corrupt. I want to learn the path of wisdom. And so notice how David starts. He starts by asking the Lord. He doesn't trust in his own wisdom. He wants to hear what God says. Who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now, you might think of of. God's tent as the tabernacle, or later the temple. Uh, But the holy hill is bigger than this. Solomon had said, Heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Dwelling on God's holy hill is not just a matter of who can can enter the temple. Because that's an easy answer. 
Priests, sons of Aaron. Okay, okay. why are we singing this song? David's not asking who can go into the temple. He, he's asking, he, he understands what the temple's all about. What's the point of the temple? The point of the temple is that humanity might not just sort of stand at a distance and go, wow, that's cool, the high priest gets to go in once a year, yay. But the point of the high priest going in once a year is so that God's people might might dwell with their God. And so David's asking forwardly, saying, hey, okay God, we get it. The high priest goes in once a year. That's pointing to something. That's going somewhere. Where's it going and when do I get to come to? Because King David can't do this. All Israel can't do this. Only the high priest does it once a year. And David's saying, when do I get to come to? And the answer from the Lord is, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right. It means exactly what it sounds like. How can you ascend the hill of the Lord? How can you enter the holy of holies? How can you dwell in the presence of a holy God? Well, you'd have to be holy. Now, we've been seeing from Leviticus in the evening service how the, the Old Testament priests had to be physically without blemish. And here, David shows that he understood that the physical requirement was pointing to something spiritual. What's the point of the physically unblemished priest? We need a morally, spiritually unblemished person. We need to, that's what we need to be in order to enter the holy place. God's standard is perfect righteousness. There has never been a different standard. So who can sojourn in God's tent? Who can dwell on God's holy hill? One who is perfectly righteous. At this point, you might be saying, well, (laughs) that rules me out. Indeed, that would rule all of us out. Indeed, this is why Paul quotes Psalm 14 in Romans 3. Because there is a sense in which truly, only Jesus is the righteous man of Psalm 15. Only Jesus can dwell on God's holy hill. But, remember what I've been doing in this whole section of the Psalms. The Psalms are all about David and Israel which means they're all about Christ and the church. Because Psalm 15 is plainly speaking to all Israel. Psalm 15 is not saying, well, this is only the son of David. Psalm 15 is saying, this is what all of us are called to. And this is why Ephesians 4 is what we needed for this, because listen for Psalm 14 and Psalm 15 language as I reread verses 17 to 24 of Ephesians 4. Paul says, you, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Have they no knowledge? They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Altogether they have turned aside. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Together they have become corrupt. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Your old Psalm 14 self. To put on the new self 
created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. The Psalm 15 side. Paul moves from the themes of Psalm 14, the fool who rejects God and thus his deeds are vile, to the themes of Psalm 15, walking in true righteousness and holiness. For Paul, as for David, the one who would dwell with God must do what is right. Paul makes it clear, both in Romans 3 and in Ephesians, that this salvation is entirely the work of God's grace, which actually was the point David made at the end of Psalm 14. If you would dwell with God, then you must become a new man. You see, there there are two things that God does in Jesus. First, He forgives our sins and reckons us as righteous in His sight. God declares you righteous in Jesus. He judged Jesus guilty because of your sin so that he might judge you innocent because of Jesus' righteousness. And if you try to come to God and say, but I'm not good enough, Jesus says, that's why I died. Because you're not good enough. Judged by God's perfect and holy standard, there is no way that you are going to ascend God's holy hill apart from Jesus. But that's the second thing that God does in Jesus. He renews and remakes you from the inside out. Again, as Paul says, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is not just some sort of like future someday that will happen by and by. This is what God has done in Jesus. This is what God has done when you are really made holy in his sight. That you have died with Christ. You are no longer who you once were. The old man does not seek after God. The old man does not understand. You sometimes hear people say that, ah, the Christian life is characterized by a struggle between the old man and the new man. But according to Paul, the old man is dead. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The truth as it is in Jesus is that you put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and you are renewed in the spirit of your minds and you put on the new self. There's a definitive break with your old life. You were buried with Christ through baptism into his death. You have passed from death to life in Jesus. And that too is why Jesus died. Jesus died so that we might be declared righteous in our justification. Jesus died so that we might become righteous in our sanctification. And that's where the struggle in the Christian life is not between two equal powers, old man, new man. The struggle in the Christian life, when we went through Colossians, I did these three circles, but there's the inner heart, the core of who you are, your new, and this is where in, in Adam, Dead in sin. In Christ, your new man has been made new. But that's where, where does the struggle come from? Well, this is where Paul talks about the flesh. And he doesn't, he doesn't make the flesh equal to, in power to the new man. There's a battle between the, the, the flesh, that drives, desires, habits, patterns. These are things that don't change automatically as soon as you're converted. These are things that require the more and more putting to death and coming to newness of life. And that's where the struggle in the Christian life is. We've been made new in Christ in our heart, in our soul, in the depth of of who we are. The struggle comes, (laughs) uh, we still are in the flesh. Uh, And Paul by flesh includes your bodily... I mean, you got... uh, This is 
this is what flesh is. It's, and that's where it's, but it's your drives and desires continue to get in the way. And the struggle between who we are in Christ and these drives and desires that haven't gone away is precisely where the battle of sanctification takes place. And that means that the rest of Psalm 15 is part of this more and more growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 15 is primarily about our sanctification, that those who are in Christ will become more and more like this, who speaks the truth in his heart. Uh, Psalm 14 showed us how the wicked devour people with words. Speaking truth begins in the heart. If, if you're lying to yourself, if you're believing lies in your heart, then your spoken words will also be lies. Now, here's the challenge. How do you know when you're lying to yourself? The whole point of self-deception is that you are deceived. So how do you know when you're lying to yourself? Listen well. Listen to those who love you. If they're telling you, yeah, you're lying to yourself, maybe you should believe them. <laughs> Take them seriously. If they tell you, you're lying to yourself. And as Paul says in Verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. If you see somebody who's lying to themselves, okay, maybe get to know them well enough to have a relationship so that they do trust you, but, but make a point of getting to know them so that you can speak words of comfort, encouragement, and even rebuke when needed. Because we are to be characterized by justice in the way that we speak to one another and in the way that we speak about one another. Verse 3 of Psalm 15, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Make sure that, you know, make sure that you, before you, you pass along a, a tidbit of information, make sure you know that it's true. And by the way, that applies to social media too. If you don't know that this thing is true, you got no business sharing it. So that's where if it's, if it's just, oh, I agree with this, I, that's not good enough. Know that it's true before you say, this is something you should pay attention to. Because the beginning of verse 4 reminds us, it's not enough simply to say nice things about everyone. Because in whose eyes a vile person is despised. Oh, shoot. Verse 3, I was starting to get there. I was starting to think, okay, I can do this. Just keep my mouth shut, and I'll never say anything wrong. But verse 4 says, no, you actually have to judge rightly between the vile and those who fear the Lord. So you have to say something when there's a problem, which means you got to, oh, shoot, now i got to say something occasionally. But do you despise the vile? I once met a man who had had a dozen affairs before his seventh wedding anniversary. He was only sorry that he had been caught. It was right to despise him. You can despise someone and still love them. Indeed, the only loving thing to do to this man was show him that his deeds were despicable. Because he had been very much the fool who said in his heart, there is no God. I'm never, who cares? He's never going to do anything about this. And so I needed to show him, no, no, this is, this is not okay. 
our judgment of others must not be based on their status in society. If their deeds are vile, it doesn't make a difference who they are. And, you know, in the same way, it could be a homeless bum on the street corner. But if he fears the Lord, you should honor him. And how do you know if someone fears the Lord? Well, they demonstrate it by how they speak the truth and do what is right. And that's why the end of verse 4 says, Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. The righteous man keeps his word. When you say that you will do something, you do it. Sometimes you make a promise and discover, oh, that's going to cost me more than I thought. Well, if you're faithful to your word, then you will not change. Now, it can be appropriate to try to renegotiate based on the new circumstances. So that's where you know, the Proverbs will say, oh, you know, go, go to your friend and, and see, to, see if you can sort of get the, negotiate something. But, but you gave your word. And so when you say, I will do it, um, it's important to be a person of your word. And the economic theme continues in verse 5. Who, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. God had forbidden Israel to charge interest to one another. You could charge interest to foreigners. Uh, so it's, God was not saying that charging interest is inherently sinful. But the point of the law was that you should not take advantage of the poor. Uh, in the ancient world, the most common sort of loan was when someone was in desperate need and they asked to borrow from you. And so God says, loan the money freely. Do not charge interest to those in need. So we're not talking about business loans here. That's an entirely different uh, category. It's rather that when it comes to helping the poor, Christians should not charge interest to each other. Now, I've been in the situation a couple of times where I didn't have money to lend, but I could leverage my credit in order to help someone in need. Notice that's a different situation because when, I mean, I didn't actually have the money, but I could leverage my credit in order to help. So in those cases, I just charged the interest necessary to pay the interest on the loan I was taking. Um, and that's because the key principle is that we do not enrich ourselves at the expense of the poor. If we are making money off of someone else's affliction, woe to us. And I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll leave aside questions of what about others who do this in the predatory world, but God will deal with them, so we need to be, just be aware of that. And then verse 5 also says, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Uh, it's worth noting Scripture never forbids giving a bribe, paying a bribe. Uh, missionaries in corrupt societies have oftentimes encountered this. The only way you can get anything done is by paying the official a little something extra. Uh, Theodore of Mopsuestia in the 5th century said, A fair sentence is delivered by many only when palms are greased. It is never a good thing to pay a bribe. But scripture always puts the fault on the one who takes the bribe. Because if you're in a situation where the only way to get justice is to pay for it, it's not a good situation. But, it may, that, but scripture does not condemn you for that. Scripture condemns the one who takes the bribe. The one who takes the bribe is the one who is at fault. You must be incorruptible. Do not allow wealth and power to buy you. You must do what is right and just, no matter the cost. That's the very heart of the economic counsel that, that David gives here. Because, as the psalm concludes, he who does these things shall never be moved. 
never be moved from where? God's tent. God's holy hill. This is the place where we want to dwell. The the contrast between the path of the fool and the path of the righteous is the fool does not seek after God. The fool devours people with his words. The fool is corrupt and does abominable things. The fool would use power and influence to shame the poor. But the righteous worships at God's holy hill and stays there because he does what is right. The righteous speaks truth in his heart and therefore uses words to bless those who fear the Lord as well as to despise the vile. The righteous is incorruptible and uses his power and wealth to help the innocent because ultimately this is what Jesus did for us. He paid the penalty for the fact that we have too much become fools and then he has, through his own death and resurrection, he's not, only, he's, he's not only declared us innocent and then said, okay, try again. Oh, that would be a burden. Try again with the same person I was before. He changes our hearts. He makes us new. He gives us new hearts so that we might no longer be fools but might become righteous in him. That that's where sanctification is then this more and more growing into who we already are in Christ. There's a very real way in which the whole point of the Christian life is simply to be who you are in Christ. As we think and we see who who he is and what he has done, we are called to become more and more what we already are in him. 